0: Hi, I'm Esau Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast, on the Ring of Podcast Network.
1: If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast, on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's The Bear, starring Jeremy Allen White, Ayo Adebri, and Eben moss Backrat. Season 2 follows as the crew work to transform their grimy sandwich joint into a next-level spot. It turns out the only thing harder than running a restaurant is opening a new one. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com FYC. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village.
0: I know where they're taking your clan.
1: Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, only in theaters May 10. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG 13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. It is Wednesday, January 24th. Today is our first live show. We had a great group come out on Main Street in Park City on Monday during the Sundance Film Festival. It's great meeting people. I thought it was only fitting that our surprise guest at that event would be Joanna Vicente, the CEO of the Sundance Institute. Joanna is a true film industry veteran. She's been running Sundance since 2021, but for most of her career, she's been a film producer, having produced about 40 films, working with directors like Soderbergh and Alex Gibney and Nicole Holofcener. She won some awards as well, including at Sundance. She founded a couple film companies, including one with Mark Cuban, and was very involved in the New York film scene until 2018, when she became the executive director of the Toronto International Film Festival, a job she held until Sundance came calling three years later. She's got a very interesting role these days because the festival is only part of her purview. We talked about the role of Sundance in the indie film business. I surprised her with the news that the head of Netflix film, Scott Stuberts, just stepped down. And I asked her about negotiations with Park City and whether Sundance might even move elsewhere sometime soon. So let's get to it. My conversation with Joanna Vicente. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. And we appreciate you taking time out of your very busy schedule. What is a typical day like for you during the festival?
2: So it, it all starts 7 a.m. We have an operations meeting. Uh, it's good that we do it on Zoom. It used to be in person. Sure. Uh, and then, I mean, it, it varies, but it can be, you know, interviews like first day, press conference, meetings, events, uh, events that we host, um, you know, so delivering remarks here and there, but you kind of just, yeah, running all day and then trying to make it to the beginning or the end of a screening just to kind of get the audience's response and see how everyone is feeling.
1: And you have a bunch of different constituencies, which is what's interesting about your job. You, you, kind of you report to the filmmakers and to your board and the sponsors of the festival and the Institute and also the audiences that come up here every year. Who do you see as your primary constituency? Like, do you, who are you thinking about most?
2: At Sundance, who we think about most? Artists. The filmmakers. Artists, the filmmakers, they're the center. They're really the, the focal point. I mean, Robert Redford started uh, the Institute in 81 um, with, uh, you know, creating a lab, creating a space for artists to come together and, and get advice from advisors and more experienced filmmakers, actors, writers, and, 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 and just create that space to bring, you know, alternative voices, voices that otherwise wouldn't be heard and, 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 and create that platform for, for artists to, to flourish. And then the the festival came second. It was like, "Oh, now we need a platform for these amazing independent films that don't fit this, the Hollywood, you know, system." And and that's how the festival was created, and then it has evolved, but it also became really the catalyst for for the industry around independent filmmaking, which well, is and pretty And that's amazing. what I want to talk about
1: yeah. a little bit because the industry has seen ups and downs, amazing highs, some lows of the past couple years, perhaps. uh, How much responsibility do you feel for the health of the independent film business?
2: We really need a very healthy, diverse ecosystem. We need a vibrant industry. And and like, do you monitor
1: the sales? And are you looking at the charts to say, okay, this year we had 10 sales above $5 million. We need to next year, maybe have 20 sales above $5 million
2: you know it's interesting of course we love to see that the films are selling that the films are connecting with audiences and 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 that you know they're going to you know that they find homes we wish that for every film but we also you know i was thrilled today there was a 17 million dollar sale to netflix of a you know one of our midnight films um but for us we we look at different measures of success you know this is our role is not to create the most amount of sales. Our role is to give a platform for what we think is the most exciting storytelling out there, is to really be that launch pad for artists that we feel like they're amazing, we need to invest in them, people should invest in them because they are gonna be the big filmmakers of our time. But those and are guess- at odds
1: sometime, aren't they? Because when I talk to film distributors, they will often complain about some of the programming choices that Sundance makes. And you said the first constituency is the artist and to give them the platform. But when you, and I'm sure you've heard this a million times, people complain, all oh, the, the films are too niche. They're not mainstream enough. The Sundance programmers care more about giving uh, underrepresented voices a chance for a platform when maybe those movies are not going to be as mainstream as some of the Sundance hits from 15, 20 years ago. When you hear those kinds of complaints, how do you respond?
2: I mean, I go back to the mission of the organization. And and at the heart, we're really an arts and culture organization. So for us is to give those voices a chance, is to have those ideas that start here, that maybe have a small ripple effect, but then two years, three years later, kind of go into the mainstream. So it's really like, what is the cultural impact? That Sundance has had. And then it's like, look at the amazing storytellers. Look at the amazing filmmakers, Steven S- Soderbergh, uh, Anna Bowden and Ryan Flack, Richard Linklater. I mean, uh, you know, Ava DuVernay, Ryan Coogler, Chloe Zhao. I mean, the Daniels, look at the last three years. Yeah, there's uh, no Oscar other better winners. track
1: record.
2: So it's like, Our role, we see it first, it's really to launch this talent into the world. And we hope that these films go on and do extremely well, but our stake is on the artists. So it's really like we're putting these films out there and, you know, some might not be extremely commercial, but that's also where, you know, sometimes it's like transformation happens here. I, I really believe that at Sundance, People come here, don't know a lot about a film. They go, they take a chance. And it's that surprise. It's, you know, having that experience of something that you were not quite sure what it was. It's kind of like really you you surrender to the story, to the vision of the filmmaker. And those are the things that changes, not films that are, you know, more formulaic or the same that we've seen last year, but stuff that kind of messes With us a little bit. And I I think that's what Sundance, you know, does better than anyone, I would say. yeah.
1: We, We talked a little bit last night at our dinner about the process of selection. I know you're not in charge of programming, but you are involved. When the programmers argue and when you get involved and there is an argument about a film and whether to include it, what are those arguments typically about?
2: So what's really special about Sundance, and maybe not everyone knows, is You know, when, you know, there's 17,000 films uh, were submitted to Sundance, which is huge uh, number, record number, uh, 12,000 short films, 5,000 features. And I mean, the team has a great process to go through, through the films. But when films rise to, you know, that level that they're under consideration, the whole team of programmers. Sees the films and then you know they they meet on Fridays and last year I I was overseeing the festival, um, so this is Eugene's first festival. So last year was an interim year, and so I, I got to see it firsthand. And it's fantastic to see all of the programmers, whether they're more on the international space or the doc space. Uh, everyone is discussing the films and and the mer- the artistic merits of the film, but also thinking. We'll disconnect with audiences. What kind of audiences? We have a really great variety of films for different kinds of audiences. And, and and it's really special because other festivals sometimes, you know, you have a programmer of one section that might be programming those films. So there's not like a overall conversation about like what is the overall slate of the of the festival. Yeah.
1: So you don't it's have really to tell cool. me the name of the film, but if there are what there are 10 dramatic competition films this year? Yes. Why did the 11th not make it?
2: I mean, those are really hard conversations because, you know, you have all of the films that people are passionate about up on the Mm boards and you might have 15 or 20 and you need to narrow it down to 10. And that's like, you know, at some point you're also trying to create what is what competition looks like this year? Are we? Do we have a variety of voices? Do we have a variety of... Of subject matters, you know, so it's not all the same. So a lot of things go into that selection. Yeah,
1: There's been a little bit of, I don't know if it's a controversy yet, but you have to deal with a big decision coming up. And where is Sundance going to be after the current deals run out with the city of Park City? What's the status of that? What's the negotiation like? And is there a chance that Sundance could leave Park City?
2: So let me tell you that one, we've been here for 40 years. Yes. Um, I mean, Park City is part of Sundance. I mean, it, it's a beautiful location. It's it's kind of remote. We're here, we get immersed into the festival. I, I feel a butt coming. <laughs> no, so I, we and love I know it. the butt because There's I hear
1: a... <laughs> it every time you go into a restaurant, you hear it every time you get in an Uber, you hear it every time you talk to people involved in the ski industry. They don't like Sundance.
2: So you know, there there are challenges. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> there are challenges. I mean, accessibility is a challenge. Cost yes. is a challenge. We've been really um, excited about the programming that we're doing in Salt Lake and, and really getting to a more diverse, younger mm-hmm. audience. And Utah supports know. the festival. And Utah as a state supports the festival. So yes, there is a negotiation coming up. We're also, you know, spending time doing you know, a lot of strategic thinking of like, where can we be most relevant? What's the role of the festival? What's the role of the Institute? How do we evolve in a, you know, really ever-changing industry around us? And, and so those are all of the considerations, but we love being here. So, you know, that's what I would say. So we want to make this work. We know there are a lot of challenges. Um,
1: Have you thought about another city that might make sense? I mean, I, I was thinking about it last night. I was like, I don't know, maybe like Austin already has South by Southwest. You might want to replicate the snow. You could do it. You could do it in Whistler. You could do it. In, I don't know. Where has the theaters? I don't know.
2: I mean, we, you know, it's hard to think of any other place than than Park City. This is just such a special, beautiful location. We love being here. But again, th- those are conversations around like what makes sense, how do we evolve, yeah. and 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 just how do we address those challenges of accessibility and 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 cost, and figure out together with Park City how do we do that?
1: Yeah, one of the things I was talking with Eugene about yesterday is this issue of how to balance the in-person festival with the online component that you started during COVID, um, and you you made some changes this year where the f- basically, if, correct me if I'm wrong, the first half of the festival is in-person only, and then you start making films accessible. What's the thinking behind that? And and how much do you see that evolving you know, where the hybrid festival is is expanded?
2: So, you know, I would say, like, what, what's wonderful and it's part of that original uh idea of Robert Redford is like we're creating something that defies logic that we don't have all the answers it's an experiment and so I really take that to heart in that we evolve uh we we take learnings we adjust we adapt and 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 we're their place of discovery and 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 we should embrace that for ourselves you know we tell filmmakers you should take risks you should like get deep into figuring out what you want to tell we with your story and and so we need to be doing that. So with digital, uh, we had a twenty twenty one digital festival. Uh, then we had to pivot in twenty two because of the omicron was surging and uh, and and then we felt like what digital did was it, it really made the festival accessible to so many people that didn't feel like that they could come to Sundance, so that this was a festival for them. And all of a sudden, like, so many people were were experiencing the festival, were, were, you know, and we saw it also as a, you know, a, we're developing new audiences for independent film. So last year was our first hybrid festival, so we had the in-person and digital, and everything was kind of at the same time, we started digital 24 hours later. And then, I mean, we we, we heard from the industry, like, we, we need a little space. We need to compel people to
1: be It should be feel special there. to be here.
2: It needs to feel special. And we embrace that because we want these to succeed. We want people to be here. We want the filmmakers to have that incredible experience that the first time they're showing their films to have, you know, those screenings packed and have that uh, you know amazing audience uh response that that uh, that we have with Sundance audiences so so we started like thinking okay and we also want to prioritize the theatrical experience well, that that's community what's interesting experience. because so.
1: but the weird thing is is that this festival is very good at getting a lot of attention on very small films at a certain time of year you know i think if Given all the attention around the Jesse Eisenberg film this past weekend, it's kind of a shame that that film is not available for film fans to watch right now, given all the attention. And I feel like Sundance did that a little bit with some partner theaters uh, in the past where they had, you know, you could go to a theater in Austin or in in New York and you could see some of the films as they were premiering. Did I get that? Am I making that up?
2: I think... My understanding is that the only time we did some satellite screenings was during the pandemic. Might have been COVID. Yeah, and they were like, actually like, you know. um,
1: But that sounds smart to me because there is no, you know, all the stars come here. They're promoting it. And yet for the average film fan or someone who can't come here or get, you know, the pass to watch, those films are not accessible to them until they find a distributor, if they find one, and ultimately hit a streamer or a theater. And there's like a, There's almost like a value hole there that needs to be filled.
2: I completely agree. But what we try to fill, at least with the digital piece, is that it will uh, start on Wednesday for industry and press. Mm -hmm. And then on Thursday, it's open to the public. And it's a limited inventory. So we treat it like a venue. So instead of going to the Echoes, you have the digital venues. So 2,000 people get to buy tickets and see the films. And all of the competition films uh, are, are going to be, uh, online. So, I mean, so that's what we're trying to do, but I agree with you that we obviously, um, and, and those are conversations that we want to have. It's like, again, how can we help, um, you know, figure out how all these films find a home? Like, what's our role or where can we be helpful in that distribution exhibition piece?
1: One of the interesting things, since you've been here, you have changed a couple of other things. What, what would you say is the, is the biggest change you have made since being in charge of Sundance Institute?
2: That's a great question. I'm trying to, you know, I think it's it's uh, really taking the time to understand. I mean we we had a ten years of extraordinary growth uh, under great leadership under Carrie Putnam. And this was a moment where everything has changed. I mean, you know, first uh, even before the pandemic, the streamers had completely disrupted. Um, you know, just the, the independent scene and theatrical, and all of that, and then with the pandemic. So I'm really excited about like really thinking strategically about where Sundance can have impact. How can we continue to do the things that we do extremely well? Uh, we have really a great formula with all of our labs and workshops to support artists. But then, where is it that we can make a difference? And and that's really where we're focusing on. And I think. I mean, one of the things I'm, I'm really proud this week, I mean, I got so many people to say, we really understand what Sundance is about and we feel that we're part of a community and we understand the why. And to me, that's a big, you know, that, yeah, that's, that's a big, a big thing because, you know, sometimes people didn't even understand that this was a nonprofit, that we do a lot of work year round and that the festival is really a man- manifestation uh, of that work.
1: But the, the times for all festivals, it appears, is, are tougher post-COVID. Um, you know, we saw what happened at TIFF where they lost their presenting sponsor at Bell. And, you know, a lot of these nonprofits don't get the earmarks from the corporations that they, they once did. Um, how much of your job is that? And how do you see the, uh, the path to sustainability long term for uh, an organization like this?
2: Yeah, it's been incredibly challenging. I mean, I'm very good friends. Of course, I worked with Cameron Bailey Mm -hmm. uh, when we worked together at TIFF, uh, and he was the artistic director. And, you know, we talk all the time. I mean, not just Cameron, but heads of Berlin or, you know, Venice or or Cannes or other festivals. And everyone is trying to figure out how to, you know, not come back because we never go back. We go forward. But, like, what's the new model? um, that is sustainable. Uh, you know, things have changed. It's hard. It's hard for the industry. I mean, we just came out of a long period of, of strikes. And this is just
1: my personal impression. I think there are probably fewer industry people here this year than I maybe saw pre COVID, but I think maybe more than last year. I don't, I don't know what your numbers say, but, um, it seems that way to me. For
2: sure. More than last year. I think last year, you know, was a little tentative, you know, it was kind of first year coming back. Uh, but you know, a lot of people, you know, have their budgets cut. So maybe instead of sending ten people, they send three. Yep. Uh, so we definitely see that. Um, you know, sponsorship. We we've been very lucky. We actually have, have amazing partners who have like stuck by us, and 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 they've had terrific activations uh, throughout throughout these first five days. Um, but it it, it is ch- And then philanthropy. I mean, we also really rely. Uh, on a lot of donors who believe deeply uh, in, in the mission of Sundance. And that, you know, overall is down in the U.S., I think at least 15% in the arts and culture, um, you know, space. So, I mean, we we're trying to figure out, like, what is the right model? I think we can't just continue to do the same and expect different results. So it's like, how do we adapt to these new realities, but also... What are other opportunities? Where should we be looking at? Uh, What are we really good at? And how can we take advantage
1: of that? Let's talk a little bit about the general film business, because I know you have a unique perch in that you're watching it all year and you're seeing the different moves that the companies are making. We saw today the head of Netflix film, Scott Stuber, step down. Um, He's arguably the most powerful person in film. Netflix is making more movies per year than pretty much any other company in the world. Um, what does that tell you about what's going on? I mean, Scott was a big proponent of the theatrical experience. And I know within Netflix, he was a guy who wanted their movies to be in theaters. And that's not the Netflix business model. Um, I don't know if that was the reason he left. I mean, I think he has another opportunity, but it's an interesting time right now because it's unclear what the appetite is for independent film at the traditional film studios. And the companies that have really floated the business for the last five years, the three major streamers, it's kind of unclear what their goals in the space are, too. I mean, how do you see it?
2: Yeah, so you just told me I hadn't even seen the news about uh, Scott Stuber. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he definitely, I mean, I associate him with the person who really uh, was the champion of the theatrical piece for Netflix to, to give a theatrical run to to those films. They really deserve that. And 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 that gathered so much, you know, publicity and love to then go into the streaming platform. He was also behind working with amazing filmmakers like Jane Campion or Martin Scorsese or, you know, so you know what is the commitment not there to do these you know incredible like more author driven well, films? They said they're making
1: and... fewer films. He said that, and I think I've made fun of him because he said they're going to make smaller number, better films. But I, I always thought that was the goal—to make good films. But I know what he's saying. <laughs> he's saying they're going to—they were going to put more resources into making the films they do make better. Uh, but I don't know how much of the piece of that puzzle is independent films. Netflix used to have. Uh, very clear dichotomy on the kinds of movies they want. They want a mix of movies. And there was a big independent film component. I don't know how much they're into that as much these days.
2: I mean, I just hope that all of the streamers and everyone just understands, like at some point you can't just have more of the same, you know, like when you have the algorithm say, now you should see that. I'm like, well, I just saw something just like that. Why would I want to see the yeah. same? Also and- for
1: movies as well that come out of Sundance. Last year, the big sale was Fair Play which was a $20 million deal at Netflix. And I would argue that Netflix may not have been the best platform for that film and getting it to an audience and making stars out of those two leads and creating a conversation around that film, which is a very provocative film that could have, in a previous generation, created a pretty big conversation if it had gotten a traditional theatrical release and the marketing that's associated with it. It might have flopped. Nobody might have seen it. Maybe more people saw it on Netflix. but. I feel like within the industry, there's a sense that that one got gobbled up by a streamer and churned up by the algorithm, and kind of went nowhere. Yeah, and that's I, a risk.
2: I would agree with you. I think a lot of these films really need the love and care of a distributor to find an audience, to market them properly, to create the conversation. And uh, I mean, that's why also, you know, I hear so many of these films that show this. Uh, this week at Sundance are in conversations and I think everyone is being more thoughtful, you know, about mm-hmm. like when finding the right home and the distributors finding the, the right films for them.
1: Yeah, I talked to a lot of the sellers and they say on behalf of the filmmakers and the financiers it's it really is the pitch. It's what does this buyer want to do for this movie? Obviously the money is a factor. You want a big price. You want everyone to get their money back. But one after another, you hear the stories of filmmakers turning down more money to go with a distributor that they feel has a better sense of the movie and a better chance of giving it the kind of love that it will need to be successful. And I feel like that is, um, it. it's it's not unique to Sundance, but I feel like it happens more here. I could be wrong, but it, I feel like there's a lot of of auctions that go to the second or third highest bidder
2: yeah it's very true i think yeah feeling the passion feeling i mean and some people have different goals you know some people might feel like whether if it's a documentary that there's an educational piece that they really want someone to be very passionate about that piece. so i think people are approaching it yeah more thoughtfully than maybe before like okay let me take the check and not be involved in the fate of my film
1: all right. We, we have to wrap up. Uh, you've been great and we'll uh, allow a question or two from the audience. But um, I, I just want to ask you, what do you see, if, if everything goes according to your plans, what do you see the biggest changes between now and five years from now for Sundance?
2: Wow. <laughs> I think we, we, we're in the process of trying to figure that out. And uh, I mean, I think we'll continue to do a lot of what we do here. I mean, just staying like true to the mission and, and continuing to give a platform for exciting new filmmakers. We also see that, you know, filmmakers, artists are working in different mediums, are much more fluid, you know, from TV to mm-hmm. film to experimenting, you know, in new forms of storytelling. So we want to like figure out how that is properly represented in everything that we do. We really want to leverage our uh digital presence and and being more of an international global festival. I you know, I, I really feel that, you know, each festival has a role, you know, during the calendar year and 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 the kinds of films that it supports and, and amplifies. And I think Sundance really needs to own that it does discovery like no one else. I mean, we are the place that launches the amazing, exciting new uh filmmakers. So how do we do that, you know, really like become that kind of global destination for discovery? And and then how do we use digital to to manifest everything that we do and how do we engage audiences you know, globally that are excited about, uh, independent filmmaking.
1: Can I give you an idea that you've probably already had a million times? Please
2: take it. That's why I love Sundance. What about a tour?
1: What about a tour? In March every year, there's the Sundance movie theater tour where you, for a week in seven cities, you make a deal with a theater chain and there's a week of Sundance programming from the festival direct from Sundance and you go around the country, and I. You know, the distributors that bought those films at the festival, they may not love it, but it's also grassroots marketing for those films if you take it to seven major cities. And it would also allow more moviegoers to buy in to the mission of the festival that can often seem like an elite sort of coastal organization. Mm -hmm. If you had a St. Louis week of Sundance films where people who live in St. Louis could see, uh, you know, a real pain or some of the other breakouts. And it's baked into the distribution deals that anyone signs out of the festival that, oh yeah, this has to play these seven cities for six, seven weeks in March and April. I think people would be into that. It might you might even make some money.
2: I think it's great. I mean, the great thing about being at Sundance is that it gets everyone singing. And mm. you, You've
1: thought of that before. I can't you, be the first person you, to you mention have, that.
2: You know, it's a gathering place and mm. it's a place where everyone is thinking about solutions about so we're taking it all in but
1: okay all right i don't know i don't think we have any more time we really thank joanna for coming thank you very much <laughs> all right we're back with the call sheet greg how do you think the live show went i think it went great we had a sold out crowd yeah a hot spot on main street i thought it was fun it was fun uh we did a little special live call sheet segment during the show that didn't really work for the pod so we are not using that we are instead talking about oscar doms that came out yesterday uh what'd you think i can we not talk about the snubs i'm so sick of the snubs i love talking about the snubs that, that's all there you is do, to Talk about like okay margot greta snubbed the other greta also snubbed like, leo leo is a big one i know come on uh, yeah i was i was sad that neither natalie portman or julianne moore got nominated for may december i liked that nor did charles melton nor did charles melton i know uh, we talked about him on on the show here, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of snubs, but there's always snubs. You know the academy has diversified so much over the past decade where a lot of foreign members have joined, and then, lo and behold, every year people are surprised that foreign films make it into the best picture race. We've got Anatomy of a Fall, we've got past lives, they're gonna necessarily push people out. I mean, the fact that uh, Greta Gerwig didn't get in, but Justine Triette did for Anatomy of a Fall, that I think is the result of the diversification of the Academy to more foreign voters, because that is a foreign film. So, that's going to happen. I don't, I, don't, I don't know why people complain about it, but, so, I'm going to do two predictions today from the Oscars. I'm going to do one easy one, and then I'm going to do one that's a little bit out on a limb, and you can feel free to debate me on either one. The The, the obvious one, I think this is Now sewn up, Oppenheimer is winning Best Picture. It hit all its categories. It got 13 nominations across the board. Every category they thought they had a chance of getting, they got. No other film is like that. There are misses on almost all the other contenders, including the big ones, Barbie and Killers of the Flower Moon. So I think Oppenheimer has that sewn up. Do you disagree? No, I think you're right. I, the real question is they have 13 nominations. The record is 11 wins, I believe, by Lord of the Rings. Oh, I, and I, I don't Ben-Hur. know if they'll get there. I don't know if they'll get there. But, you know, there's this theory that's floating around that it, there's going to be an Argo effect because Greta Gerwig did not get nominated for director, just like Ben Affleck did not for Argo. And then it turned around and won Best Picture. I don't no. know that the backlash will be as sustained. And I don't think it will ultimately stop the Oppenheimer juggernaut. Now, we've got six weeks until the Oscars, but who knows? That year that Argo won, there was no like, behemoth like an Oppenheimer up against it. I think that was the Zero Dark Thirty year, but there wasn't any massive ma- you know, major film that yeah. had 13 nominations up no, against uh, it. It's, it's obvious. If you take three steps back, it's obvious Oppenheimer's going to win. So my less obvious one, and this one, I think they, I'm probably going to get people pushing back in certain categories. I think there is a very strong chance, and I will go out on a limb now and say that Netflix will win zero Oscars. This year. So, this is basically just saying that Maestro and May, December will not win anything. Well, true. And they had a couple of other swings that they, you know, they they got a lot of nominations. I mean, if you look at the leaderboard, Netflix is second to Disney on the overall leaderboard. Disney, uh, which includes Searchlight, which has poor things. Disney had. 20 nominations. Netflix had 18. Then you do Universal and Focus with Oppenheimer and Holdovers. They got 18 as well. Apple had 13, thanks to Killers of the Flower Moon. And then you go down the list with Warner Brothers with nine, A24 and Neon both had seven. And then you go down from there. I'm not counting the shorts categories, the three shorts categories. They have a couple of nominations there as well. But I think the way it's lining up here, the fact that Netflix did not get a nomination for the John Baptiste documentary, American Symphony, which had it gotten a nomination, likely would have won. If you look at the big six categories in particular, Netflix doesn't have a real strong contender in any of those. You could make the argument for Maestro, but I just don't think it's got traction in those big categories. You could look at the best actress and supporting actress category. They have Nat Benning and Jodie Foster for Niad. I don't think either of them is winning. And if you look at Adapted Screenplay, sorry, Original Screenplay, they have Sammy Birch for May-December. That is their best chance, I think, for a major Oscar. I just don't think it's going to get there. But I could be wrong on that one. And then you go down the list of all the others. They have a, you know, sporadic nominations in all these different categories, but it, you know, I don't think they'll win in sound, for instance. I don't think they'll win. You know, it's going to be, in my opinion, it's going to be an Oppenheimer, not sweep, but close to sweep. And that could leave Netflix out in the cold. Well, they've had an okay week, so I think they'll be Yeah, one. I know. They'll, they'll have to be, they'll have to settle for their $5 billion WWE <laughs> deal uh, that they just yeah. signed. And their 13 million subscribers that they just uh, announced. Uh, pretty good week for Netflix. They did part ways with Scott Stuber, the head of film. We'll talk about that on the show in the future. But, uh, yeah, I don't think Netflix has to cry. But in the awards race, we know they want the Best Picture Oscar. They've wanted it for 10 years now. And it's going to be, I think, another year where they don't get it. All right. That's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Joanna Vicente. I want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck, our editor Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We will see you later this week. This
0: episode is brought to you by State Farm.